centuries, Easter has brought people to church on Sunday morning. And this really is, friends, an incredible phenomenon when you think about it for just a couple of minutes. For almost 2,000 years now, across every conceivable culture and language barrier, Easter becomes this really important event in the lives of people who know Jesus or even who know something about Jesus Christ. So clearly, Easter is not just another day. Now, oftentimes, it takes on kind of the the trappings of a holiday. We spend time with family. We pick up eggs. We eat candy, and that's, you know, all wonderful and so forth. But that isn't all that there is to Easter Day. For Christians, it is an absolutely critical day. It reminds us of the most important weekend of our faith, and it reminds us of a day that we believe to be the most important weekend in all of human history. Guys, the story is that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the sinless life among us, showing us who God is. Jesus was betrayed. He was crucified. He died and was buried. And on the third day, He rose from the grave. This is the story that has shaped and transformed lives for centuries and civilizations everywhere it is preached and everywhere it is lived. And guys, when a culture begins to stray from its understanding of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it needs to be reminded of Jesus and His resurrection. Our Creator has made His life available to us, but we so often choose all kinds of other paths and ways of life. We often think that our solutions are far better than the solutions that God gives us So we need to be reminded of what happens on Easter Day and what it means to us. The day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the chapter that we're going to read today, His disciples thought that their hope was dead and gone. Now, they had been told by Jesus in the previous three, three and a half years, at least three times that all of this was going to happen. He'd be betrayed, he'd be crucified by evil people, and on the third day he would rise again. They'd been told all of this, but it was hard for them to believe. And so as this morning opens up, they still believe that Jesus is dead and in the tomb. So on this day, as we read, we'll discover that most of Jesus' disciples are locked in a room for fear of the people who had crucified Jesus. There's a handful of others who take the risk to return to the tomb to take care of a corpse, not to see a risen Savior, but to take care of a corpse. The man they thought was the answer to life was dead, or at least so they thought. But Jesus did something absolutely and utterly unique. He conquered death, and He rose from the grave. Not only did Jesus come with the truth of God, but He comes with the power of God as well. The power that He grants us in our lives, power over sin and our repentance, and the power over death and all of eternity itself. And so Jesus, we're going to see this in, I think, dramatic fashion in this text. Jesus overpowered everything that overpowers us, and then He grants to us, He offers to us that life. And guys, it turns out that what Jesus promised turned out to be true. He really did 
actually rise from the grave. And Jesus becomes the answer to the deepest needs and longings of the human heart. And I think in so many ways, this is why we keep coming back to this day, not just because it's a day on the calendar, but we come back to it because we know, we just know that in the end, Jesus is the only answer to everything that we need. So as John chapter 20 opens, it's the day of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And now what he does is he spends time with weeping, frightened, and doubting disciples. How is it that Jesus meets them in their points of need and becomes the answer to all that they need? Let's begin reading in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Jesus was crucified on Friday, the first day, uh, then we have Saturday, the Sabbath, and now we have the third day, Sunday morning. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. That's how John the disciple recognizes himself. So Peter and John, the one whom Jesus loved, and she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and as they were going, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and just rambled right into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Attention had been paid to this moment. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, on the very first day of the week, early on the first day of the week, now Mary, and as we learn from the other gospel stories, Mary and several of the other women, they come to the tomb and they come with spices. And the reason they come with spices is because, again, they, they don't know everything that has happened. There has been a Roman guard in front of the tomb. It's been sealed with, uh, with a Roman seal so that no one could get in or out. And shockingly, that doesn't bother Jesus at all. He just gets right out of that tomb. But they show up believing that they're going to be able to get in and take care of a corpse, to clean it, to dress it, to make sure it's ready to go, right? They are there to take care of a corpse. What Mary Magdalene and the others do, friend, it's, it's an act of love. It's an act of devotion. It is, in fact, an act of courage. The disciples are frightened for themselves because of what's happened to Jesus, but these women are courageous enough to make their way to the tomb early on this morning. It's all of that, but it's not yet an act of belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their reaction to the empty tomb, if you read that with us, their reaction to the empty tomb is that someone stole the body. They've taken it, and we don't know where they have put it. That's their reaction to this morning, not He is risen. So Peter and John, they race to the tomb. They find the burial clothes, but they don't find the body. Then the Scripture says something interesting about that moment for Peter and John. 
It says that they believed, but they hadn't yet put it all together, that this was the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Even though Christ had told them all of this was going to happen, and it would fulfill their Old Testament Scripture, they didn't quite have all of that put together yet. So this is a thin belief. And they actually make their way back to their homes. It it appears that they make their way back to the rest of the disciples as well, where they're locked inside of a room for fear. The moment of the resurrection is an incredible moment. The moment of the resurrection is changing what the disciples believed is possible. They'd never seen this before. It's changing their what we sometimes call a plausibility structure. What is normal? What can happen in this world? They expect that just as they have always seen, someone dies and they tend to stay dead, but Jesus didn't. So the moment of the resurrection is changing things for them. And we're going to discover that it actually takes time for the disciples to absorb this, to come to full and complete belief about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it takes time for them to understand not just that He is risen from the dead, but it takes time for them to understand what this now means for their lives. You see, guys, from this point forward, everything changes for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Because they thought the cross ruined their expectations of what Jesus was going to do, when in fact what's happening is that the resurrection is completely rewiring their understanding of who Jesus is. Their expectations of Jesus. He would be their leader. He would be their Messiah. He would free the Jewish people from Roman oppression, lead them back into the kingdom of their father David, and everything would be great. And then he dies on a cross. So those expectations were wrong, so they had to die. The resurrection is changing what we understand about Jesus, about who he is, what is possible because he rises from the dead. And now that Jesus is alive and on the loose, (laughs) he begins to find disciples, and he begins to interact with them. He begins to meet them at their point of need. And these resurrection appearances in this chapter are just incredible, what Jesus does. So let's continue reading. Chapter 20 and verse 11, it goes like this. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet, They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said that, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have laid him, and I will take him. Uh, If you've carried him away, tell tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabbi, teacher. But Mary stands there weeping. Peter and John go back, and they're going to tell the disciples what they have seen, and their belief is thin. 
But Mary stands there weeping at the tomb. The cross has broken her heart. It changed her hope for the future. Someone that she loved deeply and profoundly was executed by evil people, and now the body is gone, and what on earth am I to believe? This is the Mary Magdalene who was a prostitute and full of demons, and Jesus saved her and freed her, and she fell in love with this man who had taken care of her. So this moment crushes her. Her grief is right at the very center of her story, of this interaction with Jesus Christ. She's twice asked, why are you weeping? Once by one of the angels there in the tomb, and once by Jesus himself. Why are you weeping? It's an incredible question at an incredible moment. As you and I read this, we understand a little bit of Mary's past and her life and what Jesus has done for her. We think, well, isn't it obvious why she is weeping? (laughs) But the question draws the answer out of her. I don't know where his body is. I'm here to take care of it. If you're the one who's taken it away, please just let me know where you put it. I just want to take care of the body of Jesus. Sometimes in someone's grief, we may ask them a question like that, and the point of asking that question often is to draw out of somebody the the expression of what's going on, to help them speak it out loud, to help them process it. Let's talk about this. Why are you crying? Why are you so broken? And let's just begin to express this and talk about it. Sometimes we ask a question like that because we have the answer to the pain. Why are you weeping? It's not just so that she can be drawn out of herself and process. They ask this question because there's an answer to her pain. She thought Jesus was dead. Jesus is standing right there in front of her, asking her this question. This is a powerful and deeply intimate moment. Jesus calls her by name, and she knows it's Him. There's something different about Him when He's risen from the dead. And oftentimes in these appearances, the disciples don't quite know who it is until He begins to talk with them. So she sees Him, and He's not dressed like the King of kings and Lord of lords. She thinks He's the landscaper. She doesn't know who he is until what? Until he speaks her name. How many times before the cross had Jesus called her by name? Had she heard that voice speak to her? And now that's what causes her to recognize that her Savior is alive. Her Lord, her risen Savior, knows her name. This is something incredible, friends about the God who created the universe, spun the galaxies into existence, knows the stars by all their names. He knows your name. This is the way this is expressed in the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2 say this, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Earlier in this gospel, John chapter 10, Jesus talks of himself. He calls himself the good shepherd. And in the middle of that conversation, John 10, he says this, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The evidence that Mary needed that Jesus was alive was just her name. This, to me, is beautiful. The risen Jesus fulfills her need for love and for belonging. He fulfills our need for love, divine love and belonging, belonging to the family of God as the children of God. This love that Jesus shows is the love that conquered the grave. Guys, think of it for just a moment. The story of the life of Jesus Christ and what has just happened. God, the creator of all things, reduces himself to the point where he is born. He is born to the Virgin Mary on the very first Christmas day. God enters flesh. He endures this life among us. He endures the cross in all of its pain and shame. This Jesus defeats death and hell itself. And the very first thing he does is he lets a weeping disciple hear him call her name. It's the first thing he does. This is the kind of love and power that only belong to Jesus Christ. He loves his children, and we belong to him. The sovereign Lord over all of creation, the creator of all things, loves you. He knows your name, and he calls you to be with him. Well, the story of this incredible day isn't over. Back in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad and when, they, when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. On the evening of that day, the disciples have put themselves together and probably since Friday night, probably all day Saturday, the disciples have put themselves inside of a locked room. And John tells us, one of the disciples who was probably with them on that weekend in that room, he tells us why, for fear of the Jews. And this is actually a good reason for them to be afraid. The religious leaders of today had managed to get something done that they didn't have the power to actually do, but really desperately wanted 
done. Inside of their political structure, the Jewish religious and political leadership of that day did not have power to execute anybody. Only Rome did. And so this group of individuals pulled every string they possibly could, every kind of uh, false courtroom scene, every false witness, every crowd they could gather to pressure the Romans to do this, and they got it done. They wanted Jesus executed in the most brutal of all human possible ways, and they did it. Now, you're one of His known disciples. What can they do to you? You're just one of those guys. You're not Jesus. What can happen to you now? What about your future? Even if you make it out of the city of Jerusalem under the cover of night and you go back to the Sea of Galilee and you begin fishing again, will they find you? Will they hunt you down? Will this be with you for the rest of your lives? They had good reason to be afraid. Now, what might solve a problem like that? Possibly a risen Savior who's defeated all of that. Did you happen to bring one with you, Thomas? I don't don't know, right? So Jesus, the text just says, just shows up in the middle of a locked room, and what does He say? Peace be with you. What does He say a second time? Peace be with you. Whatever reasons they had to fear for their lives, whatever reasons they had to fear for the future, as real as they were, all of them now pale in comparison to the Lord of life who is now standing alive in the middle of that room. Their reasons were real. Their enemies were real. But so was the risen Jesus. Because we're not asked as followers of Jesus Christ, to deal with the real issues of this life with a metaphorical resurrection. We're not asked to do that. We're handed a risen Savior who has overpowered everything that overpowers us and then grants us His life. If you follow these kinds of things, you recognize this. It is is as common as the sun rising the week before Easter Uh, Major media outlets will begin to do interviews with so-called religious and and Christian scholars about how silly the notion of the real resurrection is. And many of them will say, well, it is. It's just something that people believe in their hearts. You know, it's just a matter of faith. It's something that gives me emotional strength and comfort and so forth. Friends, that kind of thin faith that says that Jesus is still dead and buried and the resurrection is false, that kind of thin faith will not survive this world. We are asked to deal with the real issues of this life through the lens of the real resurrection. It's not metaphorical. He actually walked out of that grave. It's so real that these disciples in this room are changed, completely changed. And they end up risking their lives for a story, not that they believe to be true, but that they know to be true. Jesus rose from the grave, and then He commissions them with telling the rest of the world this story. There at the end of verse 21, He says, even as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. 
In the Gospel of Matthew, as he tells the story of the resurrection and Jesus working with his disciples, the very last thing Matthew wants us to hear Jesus say is what we call sometimes the Great Commission. And it goes like this at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is part of what happens with the resurrection. Go, therefore, and make disciples of every nation, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. When Jesus speaks peace to these disciples, yes, it is for their fear. Yes, it is for their comfort. Yes, it is for their strength. But it's for more than that. Is for their mission. It's what He now has given them to do. He gives them peace and the presence of God Himself. The text says something really interesting. He breathes on them, and it's symbolic of what He says next. Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is now God who is with us, filling the followers of Jesus Christ with the power and with the life of God. So there is work to do now for this risen Savior. And if His disciples are up to it, there will be no stopping the followers of Jesus Christ. All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go, make disciples, and I will be with you always. The risen Jesus grants His disciples peace, and He grants His disciples the power of God itself. Peace that is greater than whatever our lives face, than whatever our futures hold, it was very real for those disciples, and it overcame that, and it changed them. In the power and the presence of God to go into the world and become witnesses to what happens on this first Easter who Jesus is, that He is alive, and that life is different now. So Jesus does something incredible with these frightened disciples inside of this room. But one of the disciples isn't there. He just happens to be gone for this moment. So let's read the next story. Chapter 20, verse 24 goes like this. Now Thomas... One of the twelve, called the twin, was on a donut run, so he was not with them. That may not be in the original Greek, it's just a guess. Was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, you can't believe what you just missed, Thomas. We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have 
You believed because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, one of the twelve, is gone. Thomas is told that Jesus is alive, but he just won't believe it. We often just know Thomas through this one story, and we sometimes call him Doubting Thomas. I, I understand why that name is there, but I think that's a bit of a misnomer because as we've discovered, all of the disciples are struggling to figure this out. What does this mean? Is he really risen from the dead? He's not the only one who doubts, and yet we've got this interesting story specifically about Thomas. So he won't believe it. In fact, what Thomas says sounds, in fact, very contemporary. It sounds very modern. He says, unless I see it with my own eyes, I'm just not going to believe it. All of them have seen Jesus. Mary has seen Jesus. The other women have seen Jesus. He's walked into this room before. They're trying to explain it to him. He says, nope, not until I see it with my own two eyes. In some reason, for some reason, Jesus decides that Thomas needs to sit on that for about eight days. But then after eight days, the disciples are still gathered inside of that room, and Jesus again just shows up in the middle of them. Peace be with you. And then he turns and he talks to Thomas specifically. I think most of us understand this. In fact, maybe even some of, it, of some of us in this room have gone through something or have walked with somebody through a season of significant doubt. Doubt can be hard. It can be sometimes really hard to deal with. Sometimes the doubt that we experienced is a, is a generalized sense of confusion. I don't quite know what to make of all of this. I don't even know where to grab onto this. So I don't know if I can necessarily sort of give my life over to this. Sometimes doubt is just a lack of attention or care. Maybe I just don't care enough to do the work necessary to answer my doubts. And so sometimes with doubt, we're just not sure what to do with it. Now, sometimes doubts take on a particular type of form that don't necessarily affect us all that much. Does Bigfoot exist? Maybe I have my doubts. The answer to that question, one way or another, probably isn't going to affect my life very much. But sometimes, doubt goes to the very core of who we are and can shake us. Is my spouse faithful to me? Does my Father love me? Is Jesus really risen from the dead? If I doubt the answers to these questions, it affects me deeply. These are different doubts. They reach to a different part of who I am. So when that kind of doubt strikes, what do I need to resolve that doubt? What do I need to answer that, to fix it, to move from doubt to trust, from doubt to knowledge? Now, because doubt is hard, Christians and churches haven't always helped people with their doubt in really, uh, really good ways. Because sometimes it bothers us. Sometimes it raises doubt inside of us, and we don't like that. But here's what Jesus does with Thomas. He deals with his doubt by turning to him and engaging him in conversation. 
(laughs) He pays attention to the disciple who is doubting. And what else does he do? He gives Thomas all the evidence he needs that he is really risen from the grave. Guys, Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he needed. He is not repulsed by doubt. He's not turned away by the doubt of his disciple. But instead what he does is he literally and relationally, he draws Thomas into him. He says, I want you to come here and I want you to put your finger here. I think we've got this picture up here. I love this, the Caravaggio, the incredulity of St. Thomas. I want you to touch it. I want you to feel this. And what is Thomas's response? It's you. You're alive. You're my Lord. And you are my God. Instead of turning away a broken, doubting disciple, Jesus literally brings him close to himself. Hey guys, as history tells us, Thomas has changed. And he ends up taking the good news of Jesus Christ literally to the ends of the earth. Thomas dies as a missionary to the gospel of Jesus Christ in India, modern-day India. Guys, the risen Jesus is an answer to our doubt. He really is God. He really rose from the dead. He really did give us the Holy Spirit. And He really is coming back again. So guys, in the end, what our human condition needs is the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs the truth of the resurrection, what really actually happened. No more just-so stories. No more outright lies. No more wishy-washy metaphorical resurrection. No more educated guesses about how the human condition flourishes. We have the truth of the risen Savior standing before us. So here is what the disciple John thinks as he finishes these, these encounters. The end of this chapter, verses 30 and 31 Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John chose these stories, not just the stories of chapter 20, but the rest of the gospel as well, so he could lay before us the evidence for who Jesus is. And that believing in Him as the Son of God and the risen Son of God, that putting our trust in Him then gives us life, the kind of life that only a risen Savior can give us. That's why I wrote this, John said, so that you might believe and by believing have life in His name. Guys, the story of the resurrection is incredible. It is unique, and in that sense, it is utterly unusual. And yet, there are so many signs that point to this being actually true. And many of them are even sitting inside of this uh, this chapter that we've read this morning. Jesus appears first to some of the women disciples. Now, why is that 
an interesting point. In their day and age, in both the Jewish and the Roman cultures, women were not allowed to be witnesses in court because they were deemed unreliable witnesses. So if you're concocting a story and trying to make sure that everybody knows that this is true, would you pick people that in a court system are deemed unreliable witnesses? You wouldn't if you're making this up. But if you're writing what really happened, that's exactly what you would put in, what really happened. So even them, the the value that Jesus gives Mary at the tomb becomes evidence for the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also know this, the lives of these frightened disciples, they're absolutely radically changed. The Christian story moves from a room locked, full of frightened disciples, to the largest religion on the planet. How does that happen? They take the message around the world. They change the Roman Empire. They change the course of civilization, and they give their lives for it. You do that with something you know to be true and valuable. You move from fear to courage because you know the story of Jesus is true. The risen Jesus appears to many different disciples over a lot of time, and it validates the truth of the resurrection. He, he visits Mary and the other women at the tomb, the disciples inside of that locked room, Thomas later on, and the rest of the Gospels and epistles tell of all of these other appearances to small groups and large groups of disciples, and it just validates. Everyone now is seeing this risen Savior over and over again. And the disciples were afraid because of Jesus' enemies who had every reason to squash those who followed Jesus. They had every reason to produce a body and stop the spread of the Christian story because the Christians went back into the middle of the city of Jerusalem where Jesus was crucified, and they preached that Jesus is no longer in that grave. He's risen. He's alive. His enemies could have stopped it before it got started by producing a corpse. They couldn't because He's alive. Guys, only a real and actual resurrection of Jesus can in the end set the cosmos straight. Only an actual resurrection can bear the weight of the human soul and all that we need. Only a real resurrection from the dead can command my faith and give me life in exchange. John wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ, the risen Lord. And when we believe, we will have life in His name. Let's pray.